Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? We're back. It's it's unbelievable. It is. Who would have thought season four? Season four. Certainly not me. I, uh, no. uh, I I am mystified. I'm astounded. I'm tickled pink. That I'm I'm so delighted to be back at talking with you and talking with great, uh, not just magicians but humans. Everybody we've talked to has been so kind. Yeah, it's going to be a great season, and you're going to be talking to me twice as often as you did last season because we're doing 24 episodes, and we'll be uh, rolling them out on the second and fourth Monday of every month, which was our schedule for season one and season two. So there's just going to be a whole lot more of you and me yakking away. I'm loving that. I'm loving it. I love uh, everything about that. It's all good. Well, I thought long and hard about who our first guest should be, and it didn't really take that long, and it wasn't really that hard. Uh <laughs> We uh, had a chat with our mutual friend, George Campbell, and I thought, yeah, that's how we're going to kick off the season because it's a terrific interview. It really is. First of all, I've enjoyed every single interview we've done, bar none. They've all been fascinating. I found something to think about out of every single interview, but I don't know an interview that I have chuckled at as often as I chuckled listening back to this interview uh, with George uh, and or uh, gotten so many sort of little pearls of wisdom uh, tossed out along the way. This is a terrific interview. Yeah. For people who don't know who George is, he spent about 25 years, I think, uh, in the motivational speaker circuit as uh, Joe Malarkey, the worst motivational speaker in America. It was a 95% comedy, 5% motivation speech that he gave, as you'll hear, over and over and over and over again. Uh, it was very funny because he's very funny. But what surprised me late in our friendship, because like you, I worked with George in the corporate world a number of times for many, many years. And it wasn't until the Eli Mark series had been out with a couple of books that he sort of in passing revealed that he had a secret, which is that George years ago was at the very least a semi-professional magician. So George Campbell, here's what's funny about you. There's many things that are funny about you, but I worked with you for, I want to say, years on the corporate level and never knew you had a background in magic. You kept that a secret from me until I was well into the Eli Mark series. And then you kind of said offhandedly, yeah, I used to do a lot of magic when I had, I had a magic act. And at first I thought you were kidding, but you were not kidding. Let's let's go way, way back. When did you first become inter interested in magic? What was, what was that entry point? Well, I, I don't know why I... I I became interested in magic other than the fact it was another way to get on stage, you know, I, and I was never a competent magician, but, uh, as a, as a magician, I was a very good carpenter's assistant and my buddy and I would build illusions because we figured out very quickly that in fairness, it's just like the little girl inside is doing all the work and we're standing there going, look at us. And so, uh, I learned three or four tricks to a degree that I could competently pull them off. Mastery is not a word I would use. Dive Vernon's cups and balls. 
I saw him do that on TV and I thought, oh my gosh, I want to learn how to do that, which was one of the things that was really fun. So I bought the really good version of Cups and Balls. And then uh, and then I bought his book, oddly enough, named Die Vernon's Cups and Balls, uh, which I felt was at the time was a little bit on the nose. But hey, what do I know? And but what my favorite part of it was there was some move and I had his video. I had it. I had taped his video, uh, his from a TV performance. So I was taking the the book and looking at the thing. But he did this thing where he picks up a wand and does this thing. And he refers to it in the book as, well, here you do the, the, the Turkish twirl or the Swedish meatball, whatever it was. It was some move that he felt like, well, everybody knows. I just can use the shorthand for this. And this was before the Internet. And I was like, well, all right, well, that's going to be a showstopper right there, meaning it stops the show right there because I could never figure it out. But I learned that. Uh, uh and from the from the photo that I sent you, you can tell I was wildly influenced by Doug Henning, who at that time, you know, I mean, he came out and I was like, oh, my God, so you can be a magician. And I uh, that means I can send back this moldy tuxedo. And uh, and he was and he was cool. You know, that was the thing. He was just cool. And and that's one of the reasons why I got into magic was to meet girls. And I will tell you, if there are any aspiring magicians, any young men out there aspiring to use magic to meet girls, your time's better spent in the gym, really is. That's going to work out so much better for you. So anyway, we built, you know, we built the zigzag girl. We built the the dollhouse illusion where the girl, you know, you show the dollhouse empty and then the girl pops out and all these other things. And that was the majority of what we did was just big illusions because that was what we were competent and being able to pull off. And it was really, honestly, it was just more about carpentry than it was about uh, developing magic. But the thing that that drove it was I was, I don't know, for as long as I can remember, I enjoyed being on stage, which and and which is kind of interesting. People don't understand. I'm an extreme introvert, but on stage, I felt at home and I had fun. And so the part of magic that interested me most was the part of the show you know presenting the 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 magic in such a way that it was interesting and fun and it made people laugh and and that was the part of magic that that really kind of hooked me and then at some point in time uh i discovered stand-up comedy which was like magic without having to carry all that stuff with you and uh i found that traveled easier and so then, you know, so then it was a pretty natural thing. But I, but I, we, we, my buddy and I, we did the show for probably, I don't know, a couple of years. At one point we looked at trying to do uh, an amusement park for a season, but it would, it, that didn't work out as far as our, the time commitments we had, because we were pretty busy doing illicit drugs and stuff. And so that it was just a clash of <laughs> calendars, really, is what that was. But I always loved it. I loved watching it. And, uh, and I remember all those shows. There was Bill Bixby, the magician. Yeah. He traveled around in a giant jet, which I, I don't think that's true. And uh, I don't know. I, and that was always. And, and then as I got older, I was more attracted to the, the people that were. It was in comedy. There's a thing called anti-comedy where where you do stuff that is funny because it's not intended to be funny. And so there was like the anti-magicians. I felt like the the. Penn and Tellers of the world who did legitimately great comedy, but they did it in such a way it felt a little bit rebellious. And, uh, and I worked with doing stand up. I worked with the amazing Jonathan 
a bunch who uh very funny guy very little magic in what he did i mean he was a competent magician but it, that wasn't the sh- that wasn't what the show was about and so he would once he found out that i had done some magic then he would bring me up every night as a idiot to in one of it basically he would throw a sheet over me in the process of throwing the sheet over me i would put on my head a colander with a with a uh protective sponge thing and that he would stab me that was the extent of my participation and to the point where i'm like jonathan really it's the weekend we don't have to do this you know that right we're good these are shorter shows we're gonna be fine but sure i gotta back up just a bit because thank you for all of that way way back because a magician starting out First trick usually isn't diverted cups and balls. Was that literally the first thing you tried to learn, or was there something a little bit more uh, 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 entry level? Or did you jump right into cups? And I think balls? that was it. I mean, I'm trying to think. It was. I'm trying to think what I did that that I could actually do, and that was like the first thing that I saw because I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And then there was another uh, that and a, a thing that I saw Doug Henning do a version of that the version I bought was called sidewalk shuffle, which was this like four card Monty thing that three of the cards were blank. And then there's an ace of spades or something and it moves around. And then finally at the end of the trick, they're all aces of spades, something like that. Yep. But those were like the two that I remember, but divernant, I was like, okay, how hard could it be? I mean, it's cups, it's balls. I I'm familiar with both of those. This can't be <laughs> until he throws in the wand with the Turkish delight or whatever the hell that was which I've never to this day has figured out and died sadly passed away before he could share it with me. Well, I'm sure that there is a listener out there right now who having learned that routine knows what you're talking about, knows that it's not called the Turkish twirl or the Turkish, Turkish delight. It's some, I remember the thing he picks up a wand and is somehow in transferring the wand to the other hand or whatever. He moves a ball from place to place. I got nothing. I, I think it's now called the die Vernon wand spin. I could be wrong on that, but I, I think he has claimed the title of that. I really do. I think it's uh, magicians would refer to it as a, the die Vernon wand spin, where you would spin and make something appear or disappear. Apparently, that was another book that I didn't have access to. <laughs> Although it's funny, I do have, I've got this box that we, uh, in moving. I've got this that I came across when we were moving from one storage facility to another, which I think that's a wise investment. Buy so much stuff that you never have to deal with it. And it was a box of all the magic stuff. And I came across like this sidewalk shuffle. And I actually came across cups and balls and I was messing with my granddaughter with it. And basically all I can do now is that fake thing where a cup appears to drop through another cup, that thing. That was it. That's all I had. That's not really, I was not, not much more skilled than that even in the day. So. All right. Backing up again. I want to back up again. I believe I just heard an interview with, I think Michael Amar who talked about building large illusions. And he said, and it took me, you know, me and two other guys to get it there. Uh, we had to get there six hours early. Uh, it was four minutes of my act. I had to wait till they were closed up at one to take it home. And I thought, you know what? Card tricks. From now on, card tricks. And you dive right into something where you got to transport big stuff. Was Apparently, you had a way of doing that. Yeah. I don't even remember how we did it at the time. I think so, there were times where we rented U-Haul trailers to get all the stuff, but it was, it was a huge pain. And I remember, you know, I was living in Enid, Oklahoma. It's a town of like 30,000 people. And we were in high school 
And we didn't have the only access we had to anything that looked like magic was the occasional appearance of somebody on the Tonight Show or, you know, you couldn't find it. And so when it did occur, we would tape with we had a gigantic Betamax. So, you know, it's good. And and we would tape and go over that. And I will never forget. We saw Doug Henning was on the cover of Newsweek or Time and they showed a picture of him doing uh, the zigzag girl. And we thought we knew how it was done because it was that classic dark, light, dark thing that kind of compresses space so that more space looks like less space. But we looked at it on Time Magazine. We're like, all right, we don't know how this is done. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until we saw him do it on TV that we realized, you you bastards, you you retouched the photo. They actually took out half the the thing to make it look more amazing. And I'm like, you know what you're doing to kids out in Enid, Oklahoma? And I don't think they cared. I really don't. I'm sure they do now. I'm sure in retrospect. I looked it up while we were talking. Uh, you can find that wand spin now, whether you call it the Divernum wand spin or Michael Amar teaching you the Divernum wand. You can find it on the what they call the YouTube. You could be spinning a wand by supper time, George. Okay. I am only short one wand of being able to make that happen because I think <laughs> I, that may have been lost in shipping. I'm I, pretty sure I'm wandless. One of us will ship you a wand. I will look that up, though, because now I am fascinated. And I think there's a better name. I think of the the, uh, Flemish carpool or something. I think he could have come up with a... Ah! You can call it whatever you want. If you can do it, no one's going to question. Thank you. That's the kind of free speech we have left in our country, and I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, George, I'm going to continue sitting in the past here because I'm really curious. You guys are introduced. You come to the stage. What happens in the act? What, you know, you got a set list taped to the floor in front of you. What are those items? Oh, what are the actual things that we do? Yeah. What's that? What's that act like? It's big illusions and little stuff. We had this box that we would assemble and that's from empty, you know, all the sides. And then you would pull a whole bunch of stuff ending literally in a rabbit because I don't mind telling you, I've always had a very broad imagination. And I thought, wait, what would what would no one expect a magician to pull out? And uh, that was what we came up with. The the dollhouse effect where the girl comes out of the empty dollhouse. Uh, we did the substitution trunk back in the day. And I remember I'm a senior in high school and we're doing the talent show. We're doing the substitution trunk and we didn't build it. We didn't build it. We built ours like a coffin kind of thing instead of the box kind of deal my my partner is the one that gets wrapped up in the trunk and then i'm the one that ends up in the trunk and all the stuff and the the trap there was a rope that tied the the trunk solidly there was a rope that the end of the rope fell in so i couldn't uh latch the the trap and then by the time and he sees it and he pulls it out and then i'm able to latch the trap but now i'm way behind <laughs> in the in what I have to do to get in the bag and the chains and in the cuffs and all that crap, so that when uh, the way that it opened up, the audience couldn't see me at first when he opened up the thing. But he, his the look on his face was hysterical because he's like, "Well, George is in no way ready to continue this trick. I don't believe." <laughs> so he fumbles around with the top of the bag and then eventually brings me out. But. Uh, I remember that. I was like, man, this is a tough way to earn a living in high school doing this stuff for talent shows. The the funny thing was, and it was really unfair. I think about this now. 
is my buddy who is a genius. I mean, a literal genius, a guy that I, I did this with. He owns, I don't know, 50, 60 patents. He's got uh, two Emmys and an Oscar for technical achievement for the lighting designs. And he, all those, all those, uh, those uh, ring lights that you see that became so ubiquitous during COVID. Yeah, that's him. Wow. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's an amazing, and he's just the best guy in the world. We're still buddies. But he could build anything, literally. It didn't matter. The first computer he had, he built uh, all of our stuff. He was the one that said, I think I know how to do that. And so he did all the really hard work in putting, in assembling all the crap that we did. I would then step forward on stage because that's what I did best. And sadly, I think I hogged most of the spotlight, which I think decreased his interest in continuing beyond what we had. Yeah, he was he was absolutely the best. So, I mean, we did some little stuff, too. And uh, but mostly, I'm you know, I messed with the audience and, and you know, it was a little show. Was, I, we, I think the longest show we ever did was like 45 minutes. Probably seemed longer to the audience. I, we didn't poll. There was no polling data back then. And I, and I think it was better for it, really. <laughs> All right. So at what point did you decide to like let go of your partner, let go of cups and balls and the zigzag and the dollhouse and the sub trunk and just move on to stand up comedy? We built the show in, in when we were in high school. And uh, and if you look at that photo that we have, we, there was not a lot of dating going on. So we had some free time. And uh, so that's when we built the show. And then we did it for a couple of years into college. And, and and the requirements of that kind of show where you have all the crap and then you have two guys who are in college and we're in two different colleges, both in state. But still, just, I mean, it just became a it was ridiculous. It was there was no way we could continue. So uh, stop doing that. And then I probably it probably took eight years for me to decide, well, I got to do something. I got to I got to do something on stage. I got to do something that feels fun. Cause I, you know, I had a bunch of crappy jobs and I was like, this is, none of this is fun. And I went to an open mic night at a comedy club and I had written 12 minutes of comedy, which I didn't even know was a lot for your first time at an open mic night. No one told me there was no pamphlet. And somebody asked me, he said, well, what are you going to do? One of my coworkers, she said, well, okay, so you're going to go do this thing. What are you going to, then what? I'm like, oh, well, I, have, I, I plan on being discovered. Hello. And, uh, I literally, I walked off the stage and the owner of the club says, I've got work for you. Nice. I I paid, all, uh, you always pay dues, but I did not pay the traditional dues that most guys pay. But I think, you know, I've done a lot of stuff on stage and I've, I've always written and had a good sense of humor. And I knew, you know, it's, I, I came in to stand up with a lot of things going for me. And it was a very quick, within like six weeks, I was full time. And on the road, I met a guy, guy came in and traveling, a headliner, you know, that was working and he saw me work and he says, uh, I can help you. And we made a call to Atlanta. This back then there were these clubs, like the punchline, yeah. like 15, 14, 15 clubs in the Southeast. And uh, he said, my buddy wants to come in as an opening act. And I, he's really good. You're going to love him. And they go, OK. And so he booked me for 30 days, sight unseen. And so, you know, and immediately I'm on the road. It, it, so it happened really quick. And there's and no was, magic in that stand-up act. You're not using nothing. No. Just stand-up at that point. 
Yep. And it was it was funny. Uh, the very first time I was on stage, I had mentioned to the club owner because I had no introduction uh, that to, for him to do. And I said, yeah, he says, have you ever been on stage? I said, I've done some stuff. And, you know, I've been I had a magic show and he's like, OK. And so he used that in the introduction. The guy used to be a magician. And I came up and I said, well, technically, I was a semi-professional magician, which means you work quite a bit. You just don't eat well. And that was literally the first thing out of my mouth on stage uh, was an ad lib that I'm like, all right, well, that's, that's you keep it right. That's a great line. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was funny. It, it, the little tiny details that you remember. I mean, there's, there's entire years of, of stand up that I don't recall well, but there's like little tiny glimpses. I remember the first time I, I bombed, I was like six shows in before I finally hit an audience that was having none of it. And I thought, wow, I am so lucky. If this had happened on day one, I'm probably out. Because, you know, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Thanks. Yeah. No. But I was I was at the point and I, maybe there's a there's a that fine line between confidence and stupidity. But it, by that point, when they didn't laugh, I thought, what's wrong with them? You know, yeah. I didn't see it as I didn't see it as a reflection on me. It was just like, well, OK, well, they don't get it. I can't help them. I want to jump ahead. We'll come back. Some earlier questions I have, but I want to jump ahead. Are you willing to tell us the story about the prank you played on the on your fellow comedian on stage who uh, had the bad sense to leave during your set? Yeah. And so this guy is the same guy that helped me get all that work in the beginning. And so I feel like the best way to repay somebody that kind of debt is to destroy them on stage. So we're working in Dayton, Ohio. And the club was kind of set up weird in that there was the access to the kitchen was almost right by the stage. It was blocked by this little screen, but that's where the comedians would stand before they went on. And so I'm the middle act and my buddy's headlining and he comes up to the, the openers up doing a little bit of housekeeping before he's going to introduce me. And so my buddy reaches out and shakes my hand, says, Hey, listen, man, have a good set. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. We don't do that. All right. But I shake his hand and then he won't let go. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, George Campbell. And then I'm trying to pull away. The audience can't see it. And I'm and I can't. So he waits until the there's a there's a natural uh crescendo and then a then a lull after that. And then the audience is like, what? And so he lets me go at what? So I walk up to it for a to an audience that's like perplexed and not amused. And I'm like, all right. So I go, I do my little skit. And then now I should tell you, he and I have worked together. We've worked, we had worked together for years at that point. We knew we could do each other's show better than we could do our own. And so I'm watching and, and I watch him go to the back of the room. He just get big grin and he, and he walks outside and I'm like, well, that's interesting. So what I proceeded to do was ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce you do my impression every moth or flying insect that's ever been in your home which oddly enough coincidentally was his opening bit so i did like the first five minutes of his show oh my god and then i segue back into my show and then he comes back in and uh so then i finish we're standing in the same place the, the opener is getting ready to bring him up. I'm, I reach out my hand. Hey, man, have a good set. And he's like, no, 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 you're not going to get me. <laughs> and then he goes on stage and does his first five minutes, which the audience has seen as recently as 17 minutes before. <laughs> and they're, they don't understand how this is, that that guy could be ripping off that other guy's act so blatantly right in their face. 
So, so it doesn't go well for him, that first part. part. And he finally gets him back. He's a legitimate comic. And then he comes off stage. He goes, did you see that? I said, yeah, I did. He goes, man, they hated me in the beginning. What, what, what do you think that was? And I said, I don't know, man. I said, here's the, here's what it would concern me because it's inexplicable. That's material. That's solid material that just failed in front of that audience. The thing that would worry me is you never know when that's going to happen again. <laughs> and so uh, unless, until, unless he sees this podcast, he's, he's, I never told him. Because oh you know God. that's the kind of that's a gift that keeps on giving. That's like jelly of the month or something. That's <laughs> that never stops feeling good. Did you say jelly of the month? Is that what you just said? Yeah, that's yeah. a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, you get a different jelly every month. Are you crazy? Oh my God! Yeah, you get some apricot this month, and who knows? Wow. Next month, not me. It could be grape or. I've never been gifted jelly of the month. I uh, well, I feel like I've, I've missed out. Yeah. Well, I'm making a note. My life has been. All right. So what what did you like about stand up and what didn't you like? Man, there was almost nothing I didn't like. I I mean, I started doing stand up when I was like 28 years old and did it for 10 years. And it was about as much fun as you could have. I mean, the travel. I mean, it cost me a marriage. So there's that because because in the beginning, you're making so little money. You have to stay on the road all the time. And I found it impossible being on the road for five or six weeks. And my wife, I had two stepkids and to try and get back in sync with life about the time, you know, after a couple of weeks, about the time you're starting to go, okay, here's what's going on. And then you're on the road again. So that part was tough. I mean, the money in the beginning wasn't very good. It was enough. And I put a 1.7 billion miles on cars. I mean, I just drove as an opening act, you're driving everywhere because they're, they're not paying your expenses. So you can't afford to fly. But man, I met great people and I had so much fun. The comedy condo, there are weeks where, you know, you just think, okay, that was a week I'm never going to forget where, where the shows are really good because you're with quality people, but there is nothing that happens in the comedy club. This is funny as what just happened or is going to happen at the back of the condo. And when I say condo, it's just, it was always just a ratty three bedroom apartment that was so disreputable that it was comedian proof, really. Does anybody stand out? Any any of those people uh, where you just had great weeks? Oh, yeah. Jeff Cesario, one of the best weeks of my life. There was a week with um, yeah, Dennis Wolfberg, and uh, that was a week. We're in Jacksonville, Florida, and it was also Pam Stone was the middle act. I was the opener. And that's the other thing that's you say, what, what didn't you like? Uh, when you start out as an opener, you don't make as much money, obviously, but your odds of being with funny people, huge because they're, they've been around longer and they're more experienced. As you move up the food chain, uh, the odds of you being with funny people go down. And so by the time you got to be a headliner, you know, it was a crapshoot whether or not you were going to have somebody in front of you that was horrible or unbelievably dirty or, you know, that was about the time that, that, um, Deaf comedy jam hit, and everybody thought that you know, okay, well, that's that's my ticket to to fame, just being as and I was clean, and so I mean, there were times I and you finally learn self defense techniques where you just go on stage and say, "Lady, another hand for that guy," and man, wasn't he funny? I love him. Just so you know, I'm going to kind of change the direction of the show now, and if you come with me, we're going to have a really good time. And if you don't, it's going to be the longest 45 minutes of all of our lives. <laughs> and, and it was like a little it was like a little 
bit of sorbet to cleanse the palate and let them know, okay, you were doing something different now. But yeah, it was a man. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I I was I was doing stand up with a buddy of mine, another Daryl Pensky, who I love. And some of the funniest stuff I ever wrote, it was when I was on the road with Daryl. It was like he was like this muse. And he was he and I had finished this weekend at uh, this little college in uh, Georgia or somewhere. And we're driving back to Atlanta and we're on at breakfast. We're talking about I'm like, I've heard so much money. There's so much more better money in corporate and I'm like, man, I'd like to write a show like that. And we we're talking back and forth. And I said, you know, it'd be really funny. It's just a really bad motivational speaker. And he goes, yeah, it would be funny. And that was that was it. And it took me like two years from that point because I knew it was something. This was then this predated like the Chris Farley guy in a van thing. I knew there was something there, and it took me forever to figure out how, what the execution of that piece was. But that, you know, that ended up being the next 25 years of my life. So you saw corporate as a great opportunity. Did you get oh, into yeah. corporate before you created that character or did Joe Malarkey appear at the same time as you got into corporate? And Joe Malarkey is the, Joe Malarkey is the, the worst motivational speaker in the world. Yeah. Okay. Mo- mo- yeah. Yeah. I actually did a, a, a quite a bit of corporate before uh, I came up with malarkey just because I work clean, you know, and so you could work corporate. And it was funny because at the time corporate, I was making 500 bucks for a show and I felt great about it because there were, when I was a middle act, I'm making 500 for the week. So I make 500, 750 for a show. That's fantastic. And I came up with the idea for malarkey and I went into uh, the guy that booked me a lot into corporate as a comic and I said, I've got this idea for a show. And I explained it to him. And he goes, yeah. He says, I think that price sell for $2,500. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's five times what I'm getting paid now? And I'm like, why did you not tell me this before? And the, the funny thing was, I told him about this show. And the, I was working on it, you know. And, and in reality, I wasn't working on it, really. And so for a solid year, Every time I would, I did stuff for him all, all the time and I would go in and pick up checks. How's that show coming along? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's coming along, man. I'm really, yeah. And so finally we get to December and I'm coming in to pick. I did some Christmas gig for somebody and I'm picking up a check. And he goes, where are you with this? And I said, it's very close. I'm very good about this. Yes. Very near. And so... I drive home from his office to where I live, which is like 25, 30 minutes. And by the time I get there, there's a message on my machine that says, I booked it. Uh, you got a, you've got a date January 17th. And I'm like, all right, well, I have, I have a choice here. I can either call this guy who I really like and respect and tell him I am, in fact, just a big fat liar. Mm-hmm. Or I could just write the show. And it seemed like less embarrassing just to write the show. And so I did that. And the show, the first show, it was a very tiny thing. It's only, they only wanted 15 minutes. So it wasn't like I was writing an entire set. But so I wrote this. And uh, and I'll never forget, Gary said, listen, if this doesn't go well, just, just segue into your stand-up. And I'm like, Gary, you don't understand. This is a character. I said, if this doesn't go well, we're all writing this all the way to the ground, man. <laughs> and so I went up and I started... I started 
And like two minutes in, I thought, oh, I'm going to be doing this a long time. Because there, there's a there's a saying in comedy, buy the premise, buy the bet. And it's like, if you can get people to buy in on the premise of what you're talking about, now we can sell them all the fun. And that was it. it once people, once I could, once I would knew that people would accept that, man, there's a guy in front of us saying some really wrong crap. Uh, but it's funny. Then, you know, I knew man, we're going to be doing this a while. Do you remember what your first couple lines were when you came out on stage is the first time is, is Joe Malarkey. You know, I don't, I don't remember what the opening bit was, but here's the thing. Malarkey was this pent. So, so one of the, okay. So let me backtrack. One of the things that I learned in stand up from being around guys, there were guys that I called cheerleader acts that they didn't have much material, but man, they had energy and, and they just, Man, they pumped it out there and the audiences would be swept up in that. And to the point where they didn't notice that they're, yeah, yeah, there's not, there's no actual funny going on here. And so I thought until I could, I, I was confident I would eventually get the material. But until I get to that point, I'm going to use every technique that I've seen these guys do to backstop this. And so Malarkey had extremely high energy and big gestures and, and, uh, and I learned that one of the things I, I saw an interview with Don Knotts and he was talking about the key to the Barney Fife character is every emotion plays immediately on his face. There's no guile to Barney Fife. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to pull that. I'm going to everything Malarkey's thinking, it's going to show right here. So I think that energy as much as anything. And I, and I had material. I just didn't have much of it. Then I, but, but I don't remember what the actual opening. I wish I had that one on tape. That would have been fun. Yeah. Well, I can tell you from my own personal experience, first time I saw you was at a speaker showcase here in the Twin Cities, and it was maybe a half dozen speakers each doing a little bit so we get a sense of who they were, then we want to book them. Then this guy came up, Joe Malarkey, and I was sitting at the front table with my coworker, Amy. Always a mistake. I didn't, I had no idea. And about halfway through your set, she had to get up and go get a pitcher of water and come and give me water because I was about to collapse from laughter. It was the funniest performance I had ever seen. And it was just 20 of us in a little meeting group, and you were just slaying. And I thought, this is somebody, if we can convince the client yeah. that this is a good idea, it's going to be similar to what I said the first time uh, Mr. Jim Cunningham auditioned for us. And somebody said, what do you think? And I believe I said something like, uh, you remember what it was, Jim? Yes, of course I do. Because as a young performer, somebody says something like that. You live on that. And, and in some instances, John, when I am behind the eight ball and worried, I think of things that will get me through the next 20 minutes. And one of them was that audition where they turned to you and said, what do you think? And you said, I think we should hire him. I, I think we should continue to hire him until we can't afford to hire him anymore. That was one of the nicest things anybody ever said to me. And I well, no, of course, will never forget it. And I have never, uh, I've never achieved the final part of it. I've never, <laughs> I've never oh. priced myself out, but uh, nevertheless, uh, there's uh, there's always tomorrow. So I said the same thing about George when I saw Joe Malarkey. One of the things you said, though, John, this was an interesting thing, was 
if we can get if we can convince our clients that this is something that they're going to want. And and the, and I went through a period of time, six, nine months, where I felt like I had the best program nobody had ever heard of. And this this preceded that showcase, because by that point, I, had, I was already working with a bunch of speakers bureaus. But it was that thing of the hook was Joe Malarkey, worst motivational speaker in America. And I knew that was going to turn some people off because why would we want that? But I also knew it was an extremely strong hook. And if I could ever get past that initial resistance and build up a body of work and a body of clients that that liked me, that the thing that made me difficult to sell in the beginning was going to make me easy to sell down the road because nobody else, ain't nobody else trying to be the worst motivational speaker. And it, it what went from weird and off-putting suddenly became unique and interesting. The first time I saw you, George, I was the MC of some corporate event and had no frame of reference for you, uh, except John telling me, you're going to love it. And I said, okay. And okay. Uh, we did not really converse much before the show. And uh, I introduced you and you went up and I went backstage to watch you from uh, the back screen. Yeah. As God is my witness, I was laughing so hard. It, I, I may have peed just a little bit. Then I think you are going to be very interested in our customer service seminar called, Does It Look Like I Work Here? Very good. <laughs> so that one sentence, that one phrase was this. He talked about the sustenance of a positive attitude through negative assumption. Yeah, this is powerful. Yeah. The sustenance of a positive attitude through negative assumption. How to maintain a good, happy outlook on life by always assuming the worst. How to raise your standard of living by lowering your expectations. This is good. Yeah. yeah. Here's how it works. Here's how it works. You're getting ready to walk into a situation. Before you go through that door, you think to yourself, what is the worst possible thing that could happen to me? You go through the door. It happens. You come out. How do you feel? Great, because you were right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it feels good to be right. That's fantastic. Now, let's say, let's say you go into that situation expecting the worst. Something better happens. You come out. How do you feel? Great, because something better happened. We all love it when something better happens. So you cannot lose with the choose to lose system. That's what I'm saying. Choose to lose, prevail to fail, prepare to err, have the panache to crash, have the thunder to blunder, have the pluck to suck. <laughs> It was, it's genius. And uh, how long did you do Joe Malarkey? Uh, 23, 24 years, something like that. To the point where I really couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I just, I, I, I would have liked to have kept going. I just couldn't find it anymore. It was weird. I don't know. I think you just do the same program so often and so much it's like you know the lyrics, but you can't hear the music anymore. I don't know. That's a pretty good uh, description. Yeah. And stuff that should have been, it wasn't time-based. You know, it wasn't topical. There was no reason for it not to land with an audience the way it did before. But it just, I found that it wasn't. And it was just like, oh, man, this this isn't fun. And I did everything. I did everything. I, you know, I said, well, maybe we need to sell it harder. And I would try that. And I didn't like that. Well, maybe we need to pull back on selling it and, and kind of, you know, it's just, it just pull the delivery back a little bit. And it was like, no, but, but then one thing happened that, that made, uh, 
So I so I'm I'm watching the tra- the trajectory of this show slowly get l- less than it should, and then I wrote this bit that was called the TSA Macarena in my little head, and it was like a I don't know three five minute piece, and bam! I mean it just it was ex- ex- exploded like all the stuff in the old days. I call it the TSA Macarena. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, got my shoes, got my belt, got my watch and my wallet. Boarding pass ID and my cell phone. Hey, where's my laptop? Uh, and that that propped me up for another five years because it gave life to the whole show. But the thing that it taught me was, okay, it seems like the old stuff is the stuff that is not getting what it used to. But the new stuff is killing. And that's a good problem to have because I've got a limited supply of old stuff, but I have an unlimited supply of new stuff that I can write. Mm. And so that gave me hope and an idea that, you know, it's it's not like I've lost the ability to connect with an audience. I'm just not reading from the right book right now. Mm. And so that caused me to kind of reevaluate what I wanted to do and, and, you know, eventually you know, Malarkey died in a tragic uh, yak incident in a petting zoo. It was, you probably, it's in the, it was in all the papers, right? No, when when you were at your height. Wait, yeah, this is my question too, John, is like uh, for for people who are listening to this, who have no sense of how often you were doing it. I mean, you were, you were out there, constantly with this for 24 years i mean every yeah. corporation in america had you a couple three times it was busy i mean i, I would uh i was how they they did a thing on me on 60 minutes and that i was on the cover of the la times it was all this stuff and you know if, and if i had known i would have tried to enjoy it more i really would have because but but when you're working like I mean I would look at my week and it was the middle of the winter and I'm going from Boston to Fargo to West Palm to LA and and I'm really all you're thinking about is I got to make a plane. There were times where I was doing two shows in two cities in one day and literally and that's crazy because the only thing you're thinking in the first show is I got to get to the airport and the second show all you're thinking is I got to get some sleep. And, you know, so the rule was if I could physically get my body somewhere, I would take the gig. I mean, assuming there was the budget, but, and it was, you know, it was fun, but, and this is sad. And I don't know, I don't know, this may be just a quirk of me, but I don't, there were standing ovations and stuff. And, and, and I would see after that, my favorite thing was after was running women's makeup. That was the best compliment you could get where you come out and everybody's mascara is on their face. That's a good compliment. But it just got to be where I don't retain much memory of the good shows, but man, the bad ones, the ones where it went wrong, they stick, yep. you know? And it was funny, like Jim, what you were saying about, you know, when you're in a dire strait and you think about that compliment that keeps you going and I would be in a dire strait and I'm thinking, man, the only time worse than this was this other time that was also horrible. And then, you know, there was like no uplift there at all. And again, it's just the percentages. I just felt like the percentages were shifting on the show. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a 
quote from Lenny Bruce that said, the definition of comedy is to stand up in front of a group of paying strangers who paid money and you elicit a laugh every 10 to 15 seconds for 45 minutes and you, you perform this amazing feat 19 out of 20 times. That's a pretty good definition of somebody succeeding stand-up comedy. However, you have to understand that means 5% of the time you're eating it. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even so for somebody really good, 19 out of 20 still means that 5% of the time it's not going to be a good experience. And I could live with that. And I had that. I mean, at the height, when, when things were going great, they're still going to be, you're still going to be put in a situation. I mean, I got, I went to Savannah, Georgia one time and, and, uh, I was told there's going to be like 600 people in the audience. I get there and there's 90. Oof. And I'm like, well, what, what's, what, ha- what happened? And they said, well, we, <clears throat> this last week, uh, we did some downsizing, but you go out and you chipper them right up. And, you know, people who just seen the majority of their company leave and they're not sure if they're going to have a job tomorrow, they're not in the mood to be chippered right up. And so you would be put in situations where they were, it was kind of no win. And you could deal with that, you know, but when it when the percentages start changing from 95.5 to 90.10 to 85.15, at some point there you go, yeah, I'm dreading. Every time I would, there was a point in time towards the end where every time I would get a booking, I would dread it because I'm like, ah, who knows? It's a crapshoot. And and the last thing you can have in comedy is, a, is not, is to lack confidence, especially malarkey. I mean, malarkey was based on this exuberant stupidity confidence. If you did, if you didn't have that, you had to be bulletproof to sell the show. And if you felt that slip and then you, you know, you need to find something else to, to do, which I did. So yes. there's that. Before we talk about that, I want to jump back because you mentioned just in passing, oh, when I was on 60 Minutes, that particular segment of 60 Minutes came at the what we call the height, the boom in motivational, quote unquote, motivational speakers in America. And it was morally safer. And the 60 Minutes crew went around and they videotaped and they interviewed motivational speakers. And they had a point of view going in, which was, this is a huge ripoff. Why are you paying people all this money? And the speakers are doing their best to justify. And then in the last two and a half minutes, they uh, decided to profile George Campbell, Joe Malarkey. And I will just play for our audience how this segment ended. It ended with Marley Safer and you having this conversation. Malarkey's real name is George Campbell, a recovering stand-up comic. Why did you do this? Were you not a great success as a stand-up comic? I was a, I was a middle success. I was a guy that worked a lot, but nobody ever remembered. But when I came up with that idea of a really bad motivational speaker, I thought it was gold. And, uh, and since then, it's just been a great ride. But what is the value of your anti-motivation? The value of my anti-motivation is basically saying it's okay to fail. It's okay to make a mistake. How do you account for this American passion for self-improvement? Well, I have no idea, but, I'm, but I am just cashing in. <laughs> I'll take that. Which, of course, is the name of the game. So that comes out on a Sunday night... <laughs> And you're part of the National Speakers Association. You know all yeah. these folks. You probably know everybody yeah. who was. Oh yeah, I know everybody that was that was profiled in that. What was the yeah. reaction to that piece and to your part in that piece? Well, here here's the thing. 
So I have a whole bunch of people over for a watch party, right? Because this is a celebration. We're going to be in front of 20 million people. Woo-hoo! And so I've got friends and fam over and it's. Was that the tick, 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 tick? Is that what you were doing? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was that was me doing that. Um, I'm something of an impressionist. I am a jack of all trades. And so uh, they profile one thing and then they profile my segment. And it's morally safer saying, aren't you just stealing from money or whatever, stealing from people or whatever? And say, I don't know, but I am just riding this. Whatever the hell I said, I'm just riding this as far as I can. Whatever it is, it looks awful. And that's the clip. And then the then my segment doesn't play for another 40 minutes. Well, this is an awkward period with your friends and family. Everybody down there just saying, could I have another banana daiquiri, please? Because this feels like it's not going to go well. So in the context of the of the of my segment, it's not so horrible. But I the experience was horrible. I mean, I I the the guy, I, I still remember the guy's name. I won't say it, but the producer for 60 minutes and He's, oh, you're going to have fun. You're going to love Morley. It's going to be great. So I change a flight so I can stick around so they can tape this thing. And Morley shows up and he's obviously been on a red eye and he smells like cigarettes, which is not surprising. He's smoking the entire time. And so he sits down in this jacket. That there's no way a, a stylist ever said, oh, I think that shirt would go with that jacket. And um and he, and he stubs out his cigarette and he looks at me. This is the first thing out of his mouth. Are you just, isn't this just snake oil? Are you just stealing money? And I'm like, and it just, I mean, I think he did it on purpose. You know, it's like that thing to put you off. And it, and if it, if he did it on purpose, he couldn't have done a better job. And so, I mean, I would just snap back. I'm like, oh my God, they told me this was going to be fun. You're going to have fun. And then we finally get to the point this and this is when I realized I was in some deep trouble. He goes, uh, so how much money do you make? And and, you know, that seems weird to ask. And I so I said, well, uh, I know I know I make less than Andy Rooney and I'm way funnier than him. And the whole the whole room laughs. Right. Cameramen laugh. Morally laughs. Everybody laughs. And the room settles. And he looks at me and he says, so how much money do you make? And that's when you realize the person who has the edit can make this go any way they want it to. And they've now got 40 minutes of me, my goofy ass, well-intentioned, ill-suited sense of humor on display for 20 million people. And so I got done with them and I had a, I had a flight. I had a gig in Baltimore the next morning. And I remember flying to Baltimore and all I did was sit in my chair and try not to throw up. Because I knew this could go, this could be the end. This could be, this could be the end of the whole thing if they choose. And so the only thing I did that was reasonably smart was I stayed in touch with that producer and I, you know, I sent him some stuff and Hey man, it was really great to get to know you just because thinking that perhaps if we have some degree of rapport, he's going to, because he's going to do the edit. It's not Morley. Morley doesn't give a crap. He comes in and asks questions that somebody hands him and leaves. So, you know, I just smoothed, smoothed that producer as much as I could. And, you know, and the outcome for me was good. I mean, I. You come off quite well. You come off quite yeah, well. Yeah. And it's and you get the sense that I'm, not, you know, it's a And they they, they also came, they shot a, a show, a little part, a part of the show that I did in Buffalo, New York later on, and they cut it in. So you can see in context what it is that I'm doing. And basically what they did, what they used me for was to say in an entertaining and funny way what they were trying to say, which is, is 
you know, these people are just goofs and you're paying, you know, it's just nothing. Mm -hmm. And which is kind of what malarkey, malarkey was the 180 degrees away from a good idea. And so they were able to use me as a, as the avatar of what they wanted to say. Well, well, I know it was a big stir when it came out, but I in looking at it again, and it is quite hard to find. If you do a lot of digging, you can find that segment. They clearly went in with a point of view, which was, oh God, yes. These, this is a waste of money. And in many cases it was. However, having been part of booking several hundred speakers, I suppose, over the years, there were a handful who were so worth it. Absolutely. So worth having it. Seen, having seen lots of them over the course of yep. my corporate work, there you can say what you want about whether it's snake oil or whatever, or will it stick? Is it going to be, are you going to be, are these people going to be jazzed up for the 90 minutes after the presentation and then it fades away on Monday morning? Right. But there are some brilliant motivational speakers who give you yeah. things that I still, I mean, things that I collect and use uh, on a regular basis. I, mean, I, I still, I, in my mind, quote, Mr. Michael McKinley, who I saw 35 years ago, and he had a couple lines in his act that that really stuck. And I think they stuck for other people, too. And over the years, there have been a number of those speakers that I run into. And George, you, of course, are are, are one of them where it stuck. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I never felt, you know, my purpose was basically entertainment. You know, so I'm I'm just like a very corporate friendly comedian who has this this really well suited show for them. So I never felt any pressure, you know, to deliver on, you know, to move the needle or anything like that. But it was interesting too. the uh, the 60 Minutes people came down to San Antonio and it was a National Speakers Association meeting. And so they were getting some B-roll footage and stuff. But the guy that that was the producer of the, the thing after I, 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 they said, yeah, you got to talk to Malarkey because he's, you know, he's somebody you needed. And so after a couple of days of them being down there, I, I sat down with them and he says, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm really kind of blown away because they sat through general sessions and stuff and they saw DeWitt Jones. Yeah. And they saw some people and they were like, I'm, I'm really kind of surprised by how good some of these presentations are. And I'm like, yeah, that's, there are some amazing people out there. Yeah. So you know, it's, it's a very, if you want to paint motivational speaking as a, as a schlocky thing, that's a very broad brush because uh, there are some people that are absolutely amazing. So. Yep. Yeah. 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 So you retire malarkey, but then you come up with another idea and it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because what you're doing now and the ideas behind it, I think anyone who's listening who is not just a magician, not just a yeah. performer, but a person trying to get through life, what you've come up with with the consistency chain is something everybody can use. And it's not snake oil and it's not even really motivational speech. It's just a way of looking at, at life. Can you just give us a kind of a a very long elevator speech. Let's say this is going to the top of, uh, you know, 150 star building. What is the consistency chain? Well, let me just, okay. So I'm, I'm right now I'm preparing a 15 minute program that I'm going to do three times the next week. So I'm trying to, to take a 60 or 90 minute program and squish it down into 15 minutes, which is 
damn yikes. Yeah. Uh, but but the the thing that I'm opening with in this program, the thing to, to try and explain this is this is going to seem completely off topic. Before Steve Martin became famous as an actor, he did stand up. And I saw him at a performing arts center. And there, there was a bit that he did that I've never forgotten. And it was Steve Martin's two-step approach to becoming a millionaire. Step one, get a million dollars. Step two. <laughs> and the concept is that's exactly the way we talk about consistency. Here's the two-step approach to becoming consistent. Step one, be consistent. Step two. <laughs> and I just want to I want to raise my hand and just say, okay, so so what you're saying is all I have to do to get what I want is to be somebody I'm not. Okay. Well, this could be a challenge. And and that was what I ran up against is I, I began to investigate this question, and that is how is it possible? for smart, capable people to be completely aware of a few simple things that if they did them on a regular basis would result in tremendous life benefit. And yet, and it was those two words I ran head on into. And yet, you know, I mean, we, the, the frustration that comes from knowing what it is you sh should be doing, knowing that you're capable of doing it. And yet, and so I did a deep dive investigation, a lot of research, a lot of reading, uh, into neuroscience and and to try and find out why it is because I'm that guy. I'm one of the people who is definitely consistency impaired. And, and I see other people don't seem to have this problem at all. And I'm like, what is the difference? And so, and that, that's what we, that's what I explore in my, my program is, is what is the difference between the, the consistency, the people that are easily consistent, and the people that are struggle with it, why is it? What is the neuroscience behind it? Because it literally, the difference between consistent and inconsistent people shows up on a functional MRI machine. That's how deep this is. And then finally, why? Or rather, how? How can I, how can I get beyond this? And what we have to do is it's the, the, the answer to that is this is the consistency chain, which is a technique that Jerry Seinfeld used to power himself through his early career. And virtually everything that he has, owns, and is right now is nothing more than the compound interest on years and years of consistency. You know, when you first explained this process to me, it was with the Jerry Seinfeld example. And do you want to just yep. dive into that a little sure. bit? Because what he does is something any performer can do with their own process. Absolutely. So Seinfeld, I, I read an interview, and he's talking about this kid coming up to him, a young comic. He says, how can I be Jerry Seinfeld? And he's like, oh, well, first of all, that was never the goal. The, the limos and Learjets, that was not what, we, what I was going for. I was looking to be a better comic. And that's really critical. This whole idea of better, any word that ends in an ER like that, I'll explain in a second. And so he said, well, what I did is I looked at all the activities that I could do on a daily basis that would make me a better comic. And you can, and this is a very easy process for whatever it is you're trying to do. There's gotta be repetitions for magicians and and there's got, you know, everybody has some version of something that they wanna improve on and an activity that they could do to, to make that happen. And so he said, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna write jokes. And so he got a calendar, he wrote jokes the first day, got a calendar, made a little X on the calendar. Wrote jokes the second day, made an X on the calendar. Now the genius of Seinfeld, the reason why he got paid $800 million 
for the the uh, syndication rights to his, his sitcom was that he did not see two X's on a calendar. What he saw were two links on a chain. Day three, and it never gets any harder than day three. Day three, he had one unbelievably simple goal, and that was don't break the chain. Don't break the chain. And it's funny because when I first saw that, I almost missed it because I thought, well, this is too simple. How could something this simple be responsible for all that success? And the reality is all the research showed me it has to be simple. Because we are trying to negotiate with a part of our brain that simplicity is the only currency it accepts. And that's what I'm talking about, the fMRI thing. And so what I did is I looked at this and I said, well, okay, I'll try this. And I picked an area of my life I'd never been consistent at. That's working out. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to work my activity. I'm I'm going to go to the gym 45 minutes to an hour a day. And I worked out the first day, made my little X on the calendar, second day had my chain. And the reason why this works is that, by the way, that that chain extended for 531 straight days without a miss. And the reason why I was able to do something that consistently, which I had never in my life done anything that consistently, is because I could come home after every time at the gym, look at myself straight in the mirror and say, you're healthier, you're stronger, you're fitter. And I wasn't waiting for something far off in the distance to happen before I could feel good about myself. I wasn't waiting for some magic number to turn up on the bathroom scale. No, I won every single day. And because I have the kind of brain that is driven by instant gratification, I was able to actually take the thing that had been my obstacle, which is this desire for instant gratification and my inability to delay gratification. I could take instant gratification and, and nail it every single day and feel good every single day. And that allowed me to generate this unbelievable long-term consistency. I love this. So, uh, you know, having not seen the consistency chain, but having seen Joe Malarkey several times, uh, are you, have you let go of sort of the, the, I don't want to say funny because I, I I believe that whatever you do, there's going to be humor to it. Right. But but sort of um, it 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 actually not that Joe Malarkey's act didn't have things that you could you know reverse engineer go oh well what this is blah blah yeah. but this seems more uh, straight forward. It is. And, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the percentages have changed. I mean, Malarkey used to be ninety five five you know, funny to content. And this is this is probably 80-20 content to funny. And I still have things that I do that are that are funny, have stories. And that's been the challenge. I was like, I was saying, I was putting together the 15-minute piece. One of the things, that, the first thing you lose is the funny, which just kills me, yeah. you know? But then you just, you know, try and backstop it with, you know, little tiny things that you do along the way. And, and uh, but yeah, the percentages have changed, but it's still entertaining. And it's still me. I'm never I have I'm I'm incapable of talking for any length of time without hopefully eliciting laughter. You know, you mentioned our friend DeWitt Jones, and I'll put a link in the show notes for people. They can watch a little bit of DeWitt, a former National Geographic photographer. But I got to see his presentations a, a number of times and talk to him about them. Yep. And one of the things that he said 
that stuck with me about the way he built his presentation and he built it. He designed it. It was, there was nothing random in that. And I said, the humor is so strong throughout. And he said, well, I have to have humor. I have to get them to laugh because once they laugh, they've opened up and then the next thing is going to go in and they're going to, they're going to absorb it. So I have to have the humor or else they're not going to get any of the messages. And I think for you with the consistency chain, that's the brilliance of it because you're taking 40 years of making people laugh and allowing that during the presentation to make them laugh. They open up and then here comes a smart idea that you're able to absorb. Right. Well, it's and it's funny because I came up with this whole idea of and yet as these two words. And I think that's going to be the title of the book. And it may be the only book that the subtitle becomes comes before the title, which is we know what we should be doing in our life. And yet, and I wrote a whole opening to the show now that's close to stand up talking about the fact that our parking structure where we live, we've got a garage overhead garage door that I think it's the only one in the Twin Cities that's powered entirely by sleepy hamsters. I can't see them because it's the, the doors, the wall is opaque, but I think they're back there. And I think what happens is like the head hamster, he's and he blows a little hamster whistle. And then when your car gets up there, they start. There's nothing else that could explain how it start takes so long to start going up and how slowly it goes up. But this is a time, you know, this is a time for inner discovery, these moments. And so what I've discovered is I have no patience. So when it clears the hood of the car, and then I just I scoot up and then I ride that baby up the slope of the windshield. And then when it gets up to where the roof rack is, I'll be honest with you, I'm just guessing. But what I also found out is that my wife, who loves me and sits beside me uh, while I do this, she hates this with the white hot intensity of a thousand suns. And she will say to me in a very calm, soothing voice, you're going to hit the door like that. And I have some options how to respond. I can't ignore her because I'm a husband and that would be wrong. And so I could say, I could point out, say, well, sweetheart, in the in the past, you may have noticed, I have, in fact, never hit the door. And if you're willing to wait the 22 minutes it takes for this door to go up this time, I think what you're going to find is I'm going to hit it this time. And I will tell you, projecting, I have no plans to hit it in the future. Now, I could say all that, or I could compress that all, all done into two words. And she says, you're going to hit the door. And I say, and yet... Just like that. And I will tell you, if you want to have a good relationship, you don't want to be using that a lot. However, the satisfaction that comes, and if you can throw a little smirk in at the same time, oh my Lord, just the sheer delight of saying and yet to somebody, it's just, it's tough to, it's tough to overestimate. So, so I wrote that piece and that's like pure stand up. You know, that is just going back to the day. And so that's what I open the show with now to set up the whole concept of and yet. And I had so much fun writing that. And it's based on a true story. I mean, we literally, literally, she she would say to me, you're going to hit the door. And I would say, and yet. And she would say, don't ever say that to me again. And I'm like, well, add that to the list because there are a number of words and phrases that are uh, verboten. Verboten being one of them. How did that even get on the list? He just makes me laugh. He has for years and years and years, as I pointed out in the interview, I almost passed out the first time I saw him. I was laughing so hard.
Yeah, he is a delight on stage, off stage. Uh, in this interview, as I said, there are so many moments of just pure, unadulterated fun. But then about every third sentence, there's something that you go, oh, that's I can think about that. I, that's yeah. something I can uh, I can think about. And I'm really, really, really interested in seeing him do. Um, uh, and yet. I, I would love to go see this speech some yeah. point. It, I just think what a great, because uh, so many of those kinds of things uh, would be applicable or applicable to me mm-hmm. as a human being, just having sort of the, that idea that there is a way to uh, work with <laughs> my shortcomings in a way to make them less short. Yeah. The consistency chain is a really smart idea. I remember when he first told me about it using Jerry Seinfeld as an example. There are a couple other things that that George said that I thought were were just fascinating. His idea that there's a fine line between confidence and stupidity. Uh, we've got clips of Joe Malarkey in the show notes. You can look at it and, and see him in action. There were some sound bites in the interview. You get a, you get a sense of of who he was and how he built that character. I think he said something like. Uh, the first couple customers may not get it, but I can get past the first couple customers. Everybody's going to get it. And it's this idea of you don't know what you need until you see it. And nobody know knew that they needed the worst motivational speaker in America. It sounded like a bad idea until it was a great idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, sometimes giving an audience what they want is the answer. Uh, but sometimes giving an audience what they don't know they want uh, makes you a g- genius. And I think yep. George certainly falls in that category. Yeah. And there's one more thing that he said that I think is going to pop up later in this season when he said, I have a limited supply of old stuff, but I have an unlimited supply of new stuff. Uh, yeah. That is such an interesting twist on that idea of you just have unlimited things you can come up with. If if your old stuff isn't working, that's fine. Come up with something new. And it's yeah. such a positive take on that. It's also, uh, you know, to me, I, 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 it was uh, almost a challenge because I do tend to, uh, I'm fortunate enough to um, be able to work fairly consistently in the same uh, shows year after year after year, 40 years with this, 20 years with that, 18 years with this. And so there is a certain amount of, well, I don't want to come up with anything new. That's that's too scary. I'm very happy with the stuff that I'm doing that I've been doing for all these years. Starting over again with something completely fresh. Good Lord, that seems like a lot of work and pretty scary. So to hear that take on it, I've got a limited amount of old stuff, but an unlimited amount of new stuff was um, was both challenging and refreshing, I guess. Yeah, I'm sitting here smiling. You listeners can't see me smiling because you're sort of almost reflecting something that George S. Joe Malarkey said in a uh, promotional video we did years and years ago. With uh, He shot it with his friend Joe Calloway and would use it uh, as an introduction when he did speeches. And it's, it's just the two of them chatting about continuous improvement. <music> Joe, I think one thing that everybody can agree on is this. If you're going to be successful and you're going to stay successful, you got to keep improving. I mean, you've got to keep getting better, and it's a lifelong process. Don't you agree? 
I tell you what, I've, I'm, I'm very familiar with that idea, and I just want to uh, say this, uh, not a big fan. <laughs> no, because uh, continuous improvement, uh, I'll just be, I don't need that kind of pressure in my life. That's all I'm saying. Uh, a couple things, I mean, it's, it's hard work, anything if you ever try, and, uh, and, it, and it takes up your whole day. Yeah, right there. Uh, I think I could speak for myself and you and most of our friends uh, in saying that uh, when, I was, uh, when I was looking for a job, I wasn't necessarily looking for work. <laughs> anyway, um, in the show notes, we have all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, we've got the, that bonus video of Joe uh, Malarkey with Joe Calloway, uh, which is still one of my favorite videos of all time we have some links in there to a couple different versions of that die vernon Juan spin uh there's uh george mentioned the sidewalk shuffle we have a link in there i put in a link to our friend dewitt jones doing a bit from one of his speeches if you ever get a chance to see a video of dewitt speak it, it is uh he had several different programs but they were all all excellent mm. Yeah, yeah, I saw him live a couple of times, and he absolutely. It's that's why I, I was grateful that George said, you know, saying that this is all just snake oil and schlocky uh, is painting with a pretty broad brush, and I agree with that because while that can be true, and mm -hmm. while I, there is some belief in my head that um, it might not stay with you, there mm -hmm. are things that I heard. Dewitt Jones say or Joe Calloway mm -hmm. uh, say that I think about if not on a daily basis certainly every couple of days I'll like oh I just need to change my perspective here for a second yeah. and I you know I mean and that's right out of Dewitt Jones he, there are some brilliant speakers and there are some not so good speakers there are some uh, but the ones that are good are yeah. really good we also have a link to George's consistency chain program if you want to if you want to look at that and uh, find out more about that. But we need to get down to uh, what Dana Gould would call our filthy business here. Uh, it's time for you to start reading. I'd like to start reading. Can I ask a question before I start reading? You sure can. Yeah. So um, we're doing the miser's dream this season. We are. So last season we jumped all the way ahead to the eighth book in this series but now we're going back to chronology this is the third book in this series we've done the first two this is the third one it is it is the miser's dream it was originally called the trick that cannot be explained but the publisher at that time said ah, that's too long a title i can't tweet that ah. so there's now a short story in the eighth book called the trick that cannot be explained uh and the miser's dream is perfectly situated this season because there's a key element in the story in which two years ago, I met a guy who was writing a book about this thing we're going to talk about in a couple episodes. And um, I just wanted to wait until he was done with the book because no one else had ever written a book about this thing. And boy, I'm just leaving you hanging there, aren't I? But we'll find out in a couple episodes what that is. So we we did the eighth book last season. It also allowed me to only do 12 episodes so I could get the new uh, the young Eli Marks book out. The Curious Mysteries of Eli Marks. Which uh, has generated a lot of buzz, John. I am very pleased with the reactions. I'm I'm getting ready to do my first uh, middle grade classroom visit with a bunch of sixth graders who are reading the book. 
And uh, thanks to our friend, Suzanne, uh, she has taught me a lovely version of Cards Across that I can do with uh, sixth graders. Oh, that's uh, great. That's just fabulous. But anyway, so we're going to dive in now to the first chapter. Grab your book, Jim. This is the first chapter of The Miser's Dream. Chapter One. I'm a hack. Holy crap, did I say that out loud? My intention had been to whisper those three words silently to myself, but apparently my brain hadn't properly communicated that goal to my mouth. Consequently, I must have said it out loud, if the stern look from the lady in front of me was any indication. I put a hand over my mouth and cleared my throat, trying and failing to give the impression I had simply coughed. I turned to my right and recognized a puzzled look from Megan. Are you okay? she whispered, effortlessly speaking at the appropriate volume. I nodded without conviction and returned my attention to the performer who had inspired this brutal self-assessment. His name was Quentin Moon, and he was killing me. Quentin was awesome, and not in the flawed and grossly overused current use of the expression. He inspired awe. I was in awe. He awed me which is no small feat, particularly since we are both magicians. I've seen plenty of magicians in my lifetime, but not one like Quentin Moon. I had resisted when my Uncle Harry had offered us the tickets, because as a magician, I can honestly say that I may have already seen enough magicians in my lifetime. But Harry had wisely made the offer in the presence of Megan. He had also suggested we dine at Christo's in the Union Depot in downtown St. Paul as part of our evening out. And before I knew it, my fate was sealed. Parking was the usual downtown St. Paul nightmare scenario, but dinner was delightful, the hummus to die for, and the wine and the conversation flowed. For a while, I almost forgot that my primary goal this evening was to see, of all things, a magician. Megan declared our walk from dinner to the St. Paul Hotel a winter wonderland romp, but in reality, it was a wet slog through yet another in a series of recent snowfalls. None of the merchants had shoveled, and the snowplows had not effectively cleared the streets from the last dusting of snow, so crossing at each intersection became a high-tension thriller all its own. By the time we made it to the classic hotel's ornate lobby, my shoes were soaking. My feet were freezing, and my mood was grim. For her part, though, Megan couldn't have been bubblier. This is going to be fun, she gushed, as we were directed to the single elevator, which offered access to the top floor suite. You remember we're seeing a magician, right? I asked as the doors slid shut. An hour later, my shoes were dry, my feet were warm, and I had been transported to a Victorian drawing room and a performance of chamber magic that would, in many ways, change my life. Quentin Moon appeared as if he had stepped directly out of the pages of a Jules Verne novel. Thick sideburns framed a ruggedly handsome face with piercing green eyes and a warm and inviting smile. It was hard not to like him immediately, but I will say I gave it a valiant effort. He greeted each guest as they arrived, ushering us to our seats while keeping up a steady patter about the room's history, the night, and the snow 
which continued to gather on the leaded glass window sills. The living room of the suite was set with about 30 chairs, all facing the front of the room. The majority of the audience was better dressed than I was, with several gentlemen even sporting tuxes. For his part, Quentin wore a tailored coat which he removed at the top of the show, revealing a tastefully colored vest and cummerbund combination. He was an effortless performer, but I understand enough about the trade to know you only get that relaxed on stage if you've really done your homework off stage. The 70-minute show was an even mix of illusions I'd seen a thousand times before and tricks I was witnessing for the first time. But in Quentin's hands, even the most cliched illusions sported a brand new shimmer and shine. Hoary old chestnuts like the linking rings and the miser's dream, tricks which are staples of kids' birthday parties, for God's sake, took on an entirely new flavor in his hands, and I watched them all as if for the first time. The breaking point for me came when he did a seven-minute routine using thimbles. Thimbles! He actually did a routine with thimbles that not only held my attention, but transported me. I was transfixed, and my amazement and self-loathing grew concurrently as the evening progressed until I finally uttered my inner monologue aloud. I'm a hack. The second time I said it, and every subsequent time of which there were legion, I was able to keep the words inside my head, which I felt was a victory of sorts. But it didn't change how I was feeling, with my primary emotion being one of complete impotence. Megan, of course, was feeling none of this, but responded to each new miracle with the oohs and ahs which are the lifeblood of magicians. She spent most of the performance literally sitting on the edge of her seat, leaning forward in anticipation of each new illusion. And she wasn't alone. Quentin held the crowd confidently in the palm of his hand. His interactions with the audience members were real and genuine, and he was never thrown, even when a trick seemed to go slightly awry. In fact, he got more out of the mistakes that occurred than I generally am able to get when my entire act goes right, which is rare, or hardly ever. Let's call it never. Speaking in an indefinable accent, was it British, German, Baltic? Nope, turns out he's Swiss. Quentin was consistently charming and engaging, often seeming to enjoy the illusions as much or more than the audience. His delight was infectious, and the act, which was brilliantly structured, built to a final climax that left the audience stunned. We sat in silence for several long moments before the small crowd burst into applause, giving him an instant and heartfelt standing ovation. A real one, not the obligatory ovations Minnesotans proffer to virtually any performance which safely reaches its conclusion. As he had done at the beginning of the evening, Quentin spoke personally with each of us as we left, creating an immediate, if affable, traffic jam pileup at the suite's door. Due to the confined nature of the space, I was able to hear his answers to all the questions put to him while we moved closer and closer to the exit. Is this the first time you've done this show? No, I've performed similar shows in London, Zurich, Berlin, and Madrid. Why do it in a hotel suite? 
Couldn't you make more money in a large theater? Yes, but then I would miss the intimacy of interacting with each member of the audience, such as I'm doing now. How are you enjoying Minneapolis? We're in St. Paul. What brings you to the Twin Cities? I have a corporate engagement in town and thought this would be an ideal time to present this show as well. Murder a couple of birds, as it were. And then it was our turn. It was wonderful, Megan Gush, truly wonderful. Thank you, Quentin replied, turning his thousand-watt smile on Megan and then on me. Megan grabbed my arm and pulled me forward. This is my friend Eli. He's a magician, too. I hadn't thought it was possible to feel any worse about myself, but it turns out I was wrong. I suddenly felt about a foot tall. Quentin, however, seemed oddly delighted by the news. Not Eli Marks, he asked. Yes, I said tentatively. Brilliant. I had the very great pleasure of meeting your uncle, Harry Marks, at the show last night. Really? He hadn't mentioned it. Charming gentleman. We had a wonderful conversation. He even talked me into doing a lecture at your magic store. Odd. He didn't mention that either. He's quite persuasive. He is that. I must tell you, it certainly was a thrill to finally meet Harry Marks. Something of a legend, isn't he? He likes to think he is. Well, thank you so much for coming tonight. I look forward to seeing you at your shop. We can't wait, Megan said before I could respond. Quentin smiled at her, then at me, and then we were out the door. The drive back to Minneapolis was a quiet one. I did my best to convince myself this was because the roads were treacherous and I needed to concentrate on my driving. But Megan sensed something was amiss. He was really good, she ventured at one point. Yes, yes, he was. A few more moments of silence passed. Did you enjoy the show? Sure. Another pause. It doesn't feel like you enjoyed it. Is this a psychic perception? You don't have to be psychic to sense you didn't have much fun. She had a point. It's hard, I ventured, to watch something that good and not feel bad about it. I mean, if you're in the same business, if that makes any sense. But he's not better than you, she said. Just different. No, he's better. A lot better. I turned off the freeway and made a left on 46th Street, moving us as quickly toward Chicago Avenue as the traffic and snow would allow. Do you want to hear a joke? I turned to look, her adorable face peeking out of a too-big parka and couldn't help but smile. Sure, tell me a joke. Okay, let me remember how it goes, she said, biting her lip while working out the joke in her head. Okay, I got it. How do you climb off an elephant? I don't know. How do you climb off an elephant? You don't. You climb off a duck. I furrowed my brow and gave her a long look. At least as long a look as I dared give as the car slipped and slid along the snowy roadway. Honey, I think you told it wrong. She shook her head defiantly. Nope, that's the way I heard it. I think the actual joke is, how do you get down from an elephant? You don't, you get down from a duck. That's what I said. I don't think that's what you said.
My way makes just as much sense as your way. No, I began and then stopped, glancing at her again. Are you doing this to take my mind off the show we just saw and my completely understandable feelings of total and utter inadequacy? She shrugged. Maybe. I couldn't help but smile. Thanks. It's working. But you still got the joke wrong. Before she could object, I pulled the car into a parking space in front of her duplex. After a quick kiss goodnight and a final word from her on the subject, You're still my favorite magician. I deposited Megan safely at the front door to her duplex and then crossed Chicago Avenue and began the short and slippery trip down the block to my place. The sidewalk in front of Megan's building had been recently shoveled, but the owners of many of the apartment buildings across the street had apparently given up. Due to the frequency and amount of snow we'd received so far this year, it was hard to blame them, but even harder to navigate across their sidewalks. The businesses on the block had done a far better job of keeping up with the various snowfalls than the apartment houses. Consequently, by the time I hit Pepito's restaurant, I was feeling much steadier on my feet. It was still early enough that the restaurant was going strong, but the Parkway Theater next door was dark and apparently closed for the night. I glanced up at the theater's marquee and was amused to see it had changed since that afternoon when it had read Seance on a Wet Dog Day Afternoon. Now the letter spelled out Big Trouble in Little Chinatown. The theater had recently undergone a management change, and the new manager delighted in putting together what she called Parkway Double Plays, but what my Uncle Harry had come to call Dopey Double Features. These were pairings of movies which had no actual connection to each other, except that the words in their titles could fit together in weird and wonderful ways. Other favorite past Dopey Double features have included Murder by Death on the Nile, Dr. Strangelove and Death, Boys in the Parenthood, and The Citizen Kane Mutiny. Chicago Magic was next door to the theater, and I slipped quietly into the store and silently up to my third-floor apartment. I stopped briefly on the second-floor landing, but saw no light under the door, which confirmed my suspicion that my Uncle Harry had already gone to bed. I made a mental note to discuss Quentin Moon and his alleged impending lecture in the morning, and then headed up the last flight to my apartment. I was tired and ready for bed, but old habits die hard, and before I knew it, I found myself at my desk, scrolling through my new emails, sorting the cream from the spam. As I waited for one particularly large email to open, I glanced out my window and was surprised to see there was still one light burning at the Parkway Theater next door. My apartment overlooks the projection booth in the theater, and even though it's very much an obstructed view, I've often enjoyed peering into the room from my odd vantage point, trying to figure out what movie is playing by the way the lights bounced off a mirror on the far wall of the booth. There was no movie running at the moment, but something else immediately grabbed my attention. I stood up to get a better view and confirmed my worst suspicions. Even from this new angle, there was no denying my first impression had been correct. There was a body on the floor of the projection booth, lying in what appeared to be a small pool of blood.
the inspiration for that character was Tommy Wonder. And the idea I had, because I was watching a lot of Tommy Wonder stuff, the late Tommy Wonder, who was amazing. Amazing. You know, he was... He was European. He was handsome. I mean, he was like a model. He he had a brilliant mind. The lengths that he would go to to make something work. I mean, it's the stuff's just amazing. And I thought, what would it do to Eli if his relationship with Megan is kind of okay now? They're back together after the last book. But what if Tommy Wonder came to town and was interested in his girlfriend? You'd have no no means of fighting back because you're just Eli Marks and he's Tommy wonder. Anyway, that's where that came from. That's what we call this podcast behind the page. Exactly. Even I didn't know that stuff. So that's great. That's just, that's terrific fun. Yeah. If you want to picture Tommy wonder when you're reading that, you, you certainly can. The book has 24 chapters. So we're going to be back to 24 episodes this season. We're going to break it up where every other episode is going to be a in-depth interview like we just did with George. And then um, we're also going to have some surprises in what we're calling the interview-free episodes. And that'll be every other episode. So there's a lot to listen to during the next uh, 23 episodes after this one. We appreciate you listening at all, folks. And uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, Please do. We'd love to have you as part of our Eli Marks family. And um, not just subscribing, if you have a spare second and can leave us a review, that really helps. Uh, It helps other people find us. And um, we'd love more people to find us because we're having a great time and we hope you are too. Yes, absolutely. So don't forget to check out those show notes. We've got that link to a bonus video of George Campbell's Joe Malarkey in conversation with our friend Joe Calloway. You've got the Vernon Wand spin, the sidewalk shuffle, uh, some DeWitt Jones, and the consistency chain. So there's a lot to look at in this episode's show notes. We will see you next time for Chapter 2 of The Miser's Dream. Bye-bye, everybody. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.